I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Vampire's Kiss. Well, the fact is I did murder someone last night. I turned into a vampire. It's a long story. It was a long story. I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! I'm a vampire! Peter was convinced he was a member of the undead after a run-in with a fruit bat at his flimsy apartment set in somewhere cheaper than New York City. Or what? I mean, I'm finding this bat off all alone. I was a little drunk. <laughs> Plus, I was horny. This led to clashes of personality at his place of employment. Am I getting through to you, Alpha? Communication problems with his psychiatrist. Peter! U R S T U V W X Y Z! And dissatisfaction in his love life. I said I love you! Join us now for the story of Vampire's Kiss. How did, how did Nicolas Cage talk? Uh, like somebody had stitched the sides of his mouth together. He was kind he was of like this the whole time, yeah. uh, but he over-enunciated certain things. <laughs> it sounded like he was taking tips from Stephen Root. May Stapler, yeah. Uh, we've been listening to We Hate Movies and their East Cage tour, where they uh, have talked about so far. We've not yet had The Wicker Man, mm. but Gone in 60 Seconds, National Treasure Book of Secrets, and what was the other one? Oh, and Knowing. Good God. And a lot of these are just boring Nick Cage films or uh, Nick Cage films that are just disastrously bad, but that he's not the cagiest in them. And we are looking forward to when We Hate Movies cover Vampire's Kiss because, my God, I think this is where he is at the most crazy cage ever. And that's saying something. We've already done Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance. That thing is inside me. See, you're a bad man. And this thing, the writer, he feeds on Batman and he's hungry. He's hungrier than he's been years and that's why I'm shaking. Because right now, the only thing standing between you and the writer is me. And he's just, he's, uh, he's scraping at the door. Scraping at the door. Uh, 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 if you don't tell me what I want to know, I'm going to let him out. <laughs> a lot of films there'll be flashes of him being crazy just for a bit like he won't maintain that high energy the whole way through this film he slums back and forth between oh yes I'm a a cool businessman who doesn't care about anything to A B C D E F G H I J he just he's a rabid beast foaming at the mouth and um, I don't actually place much stock in Nick Cage in terms of him being a good actor. I, when you're just looking at him like he's a carnival freak show, that's not a good actor. That's an entertainer. But I'm never believing he's these characters. Mm. I'm just thinking about the meta narrative going on of like, why did Nick think this was the right approach? That's not an actor if I'm just thinking about what he's doing. It's the same as when Jack Nicholson turns up and doesn't make any effort and he's just Jack Nicholson, but at the same time is wildly entertaining in that because it's like we just like seeing him on camera being Jack. I mean, technically it's the same with Sam Elliott. He's always just this, you know, kind of gruff cowboy, but he kind of like pours himself into these roles and sometimes he really feels the intensity. So maybe, maybe that doesn't count. Like, there is a certain intensity where you get very strong personalities that always seem to come through in the same actors. But with Cage, I think we've already played this, the Tao of Nick Cage um, idea channel episode where they were talking about how whether he's an Italian bakery owner, an alcoholic screenwriter, a professional car thief, a witch hunter, or a street tough maverick with nothing to lose, Nicolas Cage sells his roles with arresting conviction. How, in the name of Zeus's butthole, did you get out of yourself? Which must be tough as both Ben Sanderson and the guy from Drive Angry. <laughs> Most superstar celebrity actors try to appear in exclusively good movies, which advance their careers, but Nick seems to be operating on a different criteria. And what is this criteria? 
This is the mystery of Nick Cage. In a superficial kind of way, much of what Nick does could actually fly under the banner of YOLO. Not cool! YOLO is an acronym that stands for You Only Live Once, and stresses that one's time on Earth is but a fleeting occurrence. And so, why not take advantage of your luck by doing something irresponsible or possibly dangerous. You can apply YOLO to many things, like eating a box of Oreos, going bungee jumping, or like Nick does, choosing movie roles. He chooses roles which allow him to just go for it, an approach he has called a modern art style of performance, or acting outside the box, or even nouveau shamanic. Nick also approaches his real life with the same devil-may-care YOLO attitude that he does his roles. Cage once bought a $25,000 octopus. YOLO. He named his son Kal-El after Superman. YOLO. He outbid Leonardo DiCaprio on a quarter of a million dollar dinosaur skull. YOLO. You get the idea. Also, I really want to stop shouting YOLO. He kind of just runs with whatever he's got and, 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 and sometimes he'll go crazy and sometimes... Like in, in The Rock, he's a really bolted down, like fun kind of straight man, uh, like wimpy action hero. Mm. That's, a, that's an actual performance that I, I rate of Nick Cage. Mm. Yeah, he is quite capable of it. And, and you know, many of those actors mm. are quite capable of doing things which are... Um, are less just them yeah. and more inhabiting the character. Sam Elliott in Roadhouse, for example. Bingo. Um, it also speaks to, uh, well highly of the script for The Rock, where it's, which actually I believe had a, a, a pass by Quentin Tarantino, which okay. makes sense as to why it's funny. Some of the dialogue, yeah, that would um, make sense. Tarantino and Michael Bay. You never thought those two would go together. But, um, but, but yeah, it's... Like, if you give actors who are themselves most of the time mm. uh, a really great script, then they can they got something to chew on instead of the scenery, which in this film, he literally chews. He literally chews. chews on the scenery at one point. Oh, my God. Okay, so it is an obscure film from 1988, which is really difficult to find on DVD. I had to pay £10 for it, which is a lot for a DVD from uh, CEX, technically uh, 11 50 with delivery. But on eBay, it was going for 20 For perspective, I think it's important to point out that about three-quarters to four-fifths of Computer Gamers Exchange's DVD stock is 50 pence. For Americans, that's like 75 cents, a DVD. Most of the rest is about a pound. You cannot move for unwanted secondhand DVDs in this country. Nobody wants them. So paying 20 pounds for one is serious business. And uh, it was barely available. And in America, barely available. Not available to view on streaming. No one wants you to see this film. I think that's a shame. Because unlike, say, Knowing, which is available everywhere and turgid, this is something that's actually, like, it's hypnotic. It's like a baby driving a car. You can't look away. No, You're like, oh, my God. I, what's I don't happen? want to watch, but I cannot turn away. <laughs> and if you, if you are somehow prevented from stopping the baby driving the car, and it's like... For a while, the baby seems to be driving that car quite well. And you're like, how? Because he's a baby. <laughs> I don't think, like, us telling you see this film before you hear us talking about it. Like, no, I, I think actually you can, you can hear what we have to say about it, then go watch it. It's not going to in any way reduce the crazy. Uh, there are times when this touches on the room levels of, of, of what am I watching. Yeah. Yeah, mm. uh, there are certain parallels, in fact, that make me think that Tommy Wiseau watched this and went that and took it totally that's as a drama performance that I want. Apparently, that they were trying to do because it is there is a question mark over it, and that was one of the the most fundamental questions that I had about this film is is are they going for dramatic tension or are they going for batshit comedy? Because it's not clear. And it seems like that slaloming I told you about, mm. that's Nick Cage going back and forth between those two extremes. Absolutely. And well, the film can't contain him. He's bouncing out the sides of the film. That's totally what they did for The Wicker Man. Yeah. Because I, I n never heard anybody say it until fairly recently, but as soon as someone said, The Wicker Man remake is supposed to be a batshit comedy, I was like, oh my God, of course. Mm. It makes so much more sense. Well, it doesn't make sense, but <laughs> it, there, there is a hint of logic to it now? This is before we re-watched The Wicker Man for We Hate Movies. I honestly don't think that was supposed to be a comedy. I think at some point, they just lost the plot, and they just stopped caring. The film got away from them. 
Okay, so we it's it's 1988 Manhattan, and we get shots of the city, and they're playing sleazy saxophone, and uh, it's, that sort of like sets the tone for what you're about to watch. Mm. And I'm going to say as well, this is going to sound familiar. Um, if you've seen a film called American Psycho, or indeed the, read the book by Brett Easton Ellis released in 1991, because Brett Easton Ellis seems to have taken the guts of this film and turned that into American Psycho. Mm. The premise is there is a empty yuppie, a hollow man who starts to realize his own soullessness but can't really comprehend it on a human level and instead becomes a gibbering monkey. And um, in American Psycho, uh, it takes the form of him going around killing women and um, at the end, it's left in question as to whether he did that at all. Spoiler warning, obviously. Like, that's, it's not really a spoiler for American Psycho. The, the best elements of American Psycho, especially the film, are how it pulls off its satire of the 80s yuppie. I was going to say, I believe that slant is mainly one that's enhanced by the film, yeah. not so much in the book. The book is not funny. It's vapid and it goes on forever. And the descriptors, the descriptors in the uh, uh, murder scenes, which are very sexualized, are fucking gut-churning, which is probably why Brett Easton Ellis sold a million copies of it. Um, but in this, Nick Cage believes he's a vampire, and when it's never really left in doubt that this is his delusion. We're not like you could probably watch this film and go, so where did the vampire chick go? But it, it just just watching it carefully, you're like, no, this is just a man going insane. He's not actually a vampire. Him charging around New York with plastic vampire teeth that he bought for a dollar, going, yeah. I'm a vampire, I'm a vampire, would suggest maybe he's not a vampire. Mm. Although I'd, I'd just like to point out here, the teeth did not cost a dollar. No. Do you know what they cost? Tree fitting. Tree fitting. <laughs> <laughs> Because he'd spent all his money on cab yes. fares. He passes up the fiberglass teeth, which are nineteen ninety-five, because he doesn't have a twenty-dollar note. Yeah. Um, so uh, his name is Peter, and when we first meet him, he's—it's uh, just kind of like that. Like, let's set up an average night for Peter. He's at a nightclub, laughing with a floozy, uh, who actually turns out to be just like a you know a decent woman uh, named Jackie, uh, and they—they're wildly overacting drunkenness. Mm. Uh, they 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 call a cab, go back to his place, and start canoodling, and it's very much kind of sport fucking kind of eighties uh, yuppie greed thing mm-hmm. going on. Like. Yeah, emphasised by the fact that this does all intersect with conversations he's having with his therapist, where although it's not well written, it is apparent that the the point here is she's emphasising your what you're looking for here. This is not real connection. This is um, you're looking for that empty sport fuck. That's what you're getting. Yeah. There's constant back and forth with him and his, his uh, um, therapist, mm. which Patrick Bateman never gets a therapist. No. Patrick Bateman really could have used a therapist. Yeah. <laughs> On a side note, by the way, the place where they go to do the sport fucking, I noticed that as they go up the stairs, they touch the banister and it wavers. And I'm like, this thing is made of wafer-thin string mm. and then they go up to the landing and you you start talking about like uh, a twitter feed where people have taken photographs of houses that are just designed horribly mm. where there's like a bathtub on the landing with no rail so if you get out of the bath on the wrong side you plummet to your death yes <laughs> and that's what this apartment is and there's this little kid oogling them from above it's like one in the morning kid go to bed but if this I, I was thinking if this is not a set that they built which if it is who the hell designed it probably the same person who designed the bat yeah um, but if not if they've like bought an apartment building or gone to an apartment building to film it this is the cheapest walk up tenement they could find so you cannot convince me this guy is a rich yuppie no he's a I know it's is it New York it's in Manhattan yeah yeah but you got the shots of the two towers over so, and over again twin even towers even so yeah I think it is a set mm. because like you only see that room, that staircase, yeah. and it's wobbly as fuck. Yeah. I think that this apartment is horrible. I think that they knew when looking at Nick Cage's shrieking performance, we can't take this guy to a place where people live, <laughs> and we're not paying to rent at a, bo- a block of apartments which is vacant. Mm. So uh, yeah, I think they built the set, and it's uh, it's a death trap. Yes, okay. yes, it is. And then through the window flies. A woolen sock with wings. Yes. Which we are led to believe is a bat. 
And it's like, guys, how much do bats cost to rent? This thing looked like, <laughs> right, okay. I, I get the whole sort of, you know, bats and mice with wings, like the rodent connection. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, get a mouse, staple some wings to it. Oh, no, blue tack some wings to here's it. Here's the thing. Well, Dangle no, it on a string. That's clearly exactly what they've done, except that instead of a mouse... What they've gone for is one of those weird, cuddly rat things that existed in the 70s, where someone took a tube of hairy material, Ooh. filled it with K-pop, oh, and it's disgusting. it at both ends, and then put, like, well, it doesn't have a tail, but it's got, like, these Googly weird eyes. little felt ears. It, it looks like a child's cuddly toy. Yeah. That they've put wings on. It, it so it r- flies around the room, and they are on a string, and they are laughing at it, and they are batting it away. And she goes outside, and it, it apparently bites Nick Cage on the neck, and then he tells his psychiatrist later, and it kind of aroused me. And she's like, "So let me get this straight: you were flapping at a bat with your great big hands, and that gave you a stiffy." Yeah. Shoot. 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 Or what? I mean, I'm finding this bat off all alone. And I'll be damned if I didn't get really turned on. And I'm doing the Nick Cage, the classic Nick Cage voice here, but that's, that's not, not what he does. That's not how he talks, no. <laughs> he talks, he talks like this. In kind of, like when he's doing his smooth thing all the time. I said near the end, he's just Trump now. Well, yes. Maybe Trump watched this and went, that is the yuppie I want to be. But it did occur to me that this film would have been, not better is the wrong word, but it would have been a more logical slant if that character had been played by somebody like Crispin Glover. And that gave me Mm. one of the hints to my theory. Oh, yeah, yeah. So then uh, he next day at work, he's, uh, you know, mooching around in sunglasses and bullying Maria Conchita Alonso, who was in The Running Man and Predator 2. Gives actually quite a good performance in this uh, uh, film. Effectively, she's kind of our protagonist, because it's not really Peter. Absolutely. He is a colossal asshole to her. Her name's Alva. He is a colossal, like, spectacular asshole to her. And it's never really established why. Aside from the fact that He's a white, rich guy, top of the chain. Yeah. She is a poor Latina office worker. And he has picked her to do a crummy job, which is to find one file from the 1960s from a giant stack of archived folders, which she has to go through every single day until, as she says, her eyes are hurting from looking at all of this, these dates and statistics. Yeah. Well, that, I think, the, the dynamic that they set up there is that, so that they have a contrast with the very dominant vampire woman that he ends up obsessed with. Yeah, well, just, as a, like, just to explain the vampire woman, the night after the bat, he goes to a club, compliments a, a woman on her earrings, and then we immediately get a scene where he's necking on the bed, literally, with uh, this woman in her underwear, and she... <laughs> sprouts the fangs and bites him and he's like oh but seems to really enjoy it and then he comes in the next day after making her coffee and holds coffee out to an empty bed to suggest he may have complimented this girl on her earrings in the club but she didn't necessarily come home with him the vampire woman who bit him could simply have been and definitely was by the narrative of the film uh, a hallucination, a, uh, a, a fabrication part of his mind. Mm. But she is kind of a dominatrix type who keeps reappearing and disappearing yeah. and talking about him being with her, yeah. which is, I believe, uh, exemplary of him losing his soul. Yes, or his mind. Indeed. Or both. First one, then the um, other. But the, but yeah, the, the contrast, contrast between her and Alva uh, seemed to me to be enhancing the fact that this is an echo of the... Victorian take on vampires. If you imagine the setting of this being uh, 1880s Manhattan rather than 1980s Manhattan, the uh, the core theme of I can't possibly be in love with this overly sexual woman, it must be some kind of demonic possession. I will turn my attention to this uh, 
paragon of domestic virtue, this um, naive, innocent woman who, despite the fact that she appears to be in her mid-30s, still lives with her parents and brother. And her mother treats her like she's 10. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that, that whole sort of, the this is the, the good woman that I'm supposed to go after. And in fact, he tries to redeem himself almost at one point by pursuing her so she will kill him. Yeah, he seems to be conflicted in that he wants to apologise to her, but then every time he comes to apologise to her, he then winds up tormenting her further yeah. and terrorising her. Yeah. And at the same time, he's seeking her to be the, the, the arbiter of purity that can take him that out of this world. Him. yeah, indeed. Save him, uh, redemption through uh, uh, giving himself up. Yeah. But there is a scene when he tells her she has to do this crappy job. That is, like, maybe top five scenes of acting lunacy I have ever seen. It might even be number one, where he has chosen to become a twisted demon man in his expression of this awful kind of big dick swinging, mm. victimising mentality. And specifically in a way that is unnecessary as well, because he does have a moment of more lunacy towards the end. Oh, yeah. But that seems entirely appropriate for the context of what they're trying to get across. This is like, you didn't have to do it like this, did you, Nick? <laughs> yeah, this could, this film could have been shot from Alva's point of view mm. and had her as the sympathetic protagonist the whole time. And it could have been called, My Boss Fucking Sucks. Yes. Which works. Absolutely. She has a conversation with her mum at one point where her mum's like, everybody hates their boss. And I'm thinking, yeah, Yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) You don't know this guy. Alva! Alva! There you are! He also messes around Jackie, who's the girl he met at the beginning, and that, that, that thread kind of doesn't go anywhere. I suppose it's just exemplary of the kind of sort of mid-range girl that he could just have carried on with. Yeah. Nothing particularly deep, but companionship. Yeah, and it does kind of feed back to something that comes up at the end um, about what he's actually looking for. Mm. And to be fair on her, we only see her once drunk. Her choice of venue for a second date was an art gallery. Maybe there were more depths to her, but he didn't stick around to find out. Give her the old ding-dong ditch in front of the Degas. So he chases Alva into a bathroom stall, uh, um, <laughs> literally chasing her, and she's running da- down the office hallway screaming, and everyone's like, uh, actually, like when he gets into the bathroom, a female employee goes, what the fuck is happening here? <laughs> a just question. <laughs> Uh, and uh, that that then cuts to uh, a bunch of white yuppies who never turn up again, just sniggering at Alva behind her back. <laughs> She's poor. <laughs> she asked me for a raise because you abused her. <laughs> the very idea. <laughs> yeah, well, quite. Which also does kind of... You know, the more we talk about this, the better this film actually seems in it terms is. of its intent. But that does seem to sort of suggest that his... His descent into madness, as with Patrick Bateman's, is not noticed initially because of the... He's uh, surrounded by soulless men. Exactly. So they just, it just, his behaviour at this point is simply a matter of degree. Yeah, he's just copying these wankers. Yeah. So, like, occasionally I kept thinking he was like Michael Scott. You know how Michael Scott tends to mirror people? Mm. If they're obnoxious, he will try to be obnoxious as well. Yeah. But Peter is as empty as the people around him. Yeah. Michael is not empty. Michael is He just full. doesn't trust what he actually has inside. Yeah. But they're both children. Yes. I got a, a distinct impression from Peter that he was a child adrift in a what he perceived as a grown-up world. Which he emphasises by the way he moves and the way he stands, makes that suit sit on him like mm. a... Like he's three kids in an overcoat. And I did a business today. (laughs) All right, here you go. Take it there. It's been opened. Yeah, it was mine. What's missing? The turtles. Where are the turtles? Where are the turtles? Come on, guys, get out of here. Where are the turtles? Where are they? Immediately following the yuppies, he goes home and trashes his apartment. And this is like, this is why I thought Tommy Wiseau watched yeah. this. Because yeah. when he trashes like the apartment in the room, room, but but this actually has an intensity to it. When Tommy Wiseau like throws stuff off the dress, he's like, yeah. 
with his flapping hand. Nick Cage is like like smashing stuff, like endangering himself with a level of intensity. It's it's, it's still morbid and pathetic to watch, but at the same time, it, it, this is what I think Tommy was trying to... Sorry, Johnny. Donny? Tommy? It's blended into one now. <laughs> this is what I think Tommy was trying to uh, achieve. Yeah. Vampire's kiss should not be your goal. Yeah. <laughs> Nicolas Cage doing Tennessee Williams. Mm. There are times when I feel like um, Nicolas Cage was, was wasted on a film, and then there are times when I feel like a film was wasted on Nicolas Cage. Captain Corelli's Mandolin I've never seen, mm. but that got me a B in English, because uh, that was one of the pieces for my uh, final test. And I've always gonna, I'm always going to have a soft spot for Captain Corelli's Mandolin. I've never read the book, mm. but then Nicolas Cage is in it. I'm like, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> Like if like, hang on, you've never read the book, you've never seen the film. How did you get the B? <laughs> well, I, I read the passage that they gave me and oh, just made oh, some right. really great observations bit. on okay, it. Okay, I got you. It was interestingly about ear irrigation. <laughs> That's right. Look impressed. Okay. I was very proud of that B. Mm. I've never made a noise in an exam before, but I actually went no. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> When I read, like, there was a, there was an amusing bit in it, but I, I, I'm going to have to watch Captain Corelli's Mandolin at some point. But it feels like Nicolas Cage, like Nicolas Cage being bland, mm. is the worst of crimes because what's the point of getting him in mm. if he's not going to be not like this? Do anything weird. It works when you have like the reason Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance sucks is because he doesn't maintain mm. screaming at the door the whole way through. It's not acting, but it is kind of it's something. It's something. <laughs> But Nick Cage, tuned out, checked out, doesn't care. That's boring to watch. Yeah. Uh, Gone in 60 Seconds is dull to watch. Mm. It is a dull film. That's true. That's a dull film and it has Angelina Jolie in it. Yeah. If you have Angelina Jolie and you manage to make a dull film, what are you even doing in this industry? <laughs> but yeah, the, the scene where he bullies Alva with the... Where he's unnecessarily awful like that. You need to see this on YouTube. Like, mm. I'm going to play it now, but, but he, we can't communicate. We can't it communicate. In an audio medium. What? Like his eyes go up and huge and wide. He hunches his shoulders. He grins maniacally. His eyebrows arch upwards, and he's kind of like a little Miko Hughes. Mm. It's crazy how he does this. Yeah, like I said, like top five, maybe top one, just maddest moments for an actor. Come in, Alva. I hope you're not still angry at me about the other day, Alva. I apologized, and, and I honestly meant it. Pistachio? Yeah, that mescaline. Wow. That's strange stuff. Whew. I'll never do that again. Jeez. Yeah, I know. I did it once. Did you? Did you? Yeah, just just once in high school. Ah. High school. Yes, yes. Those were the days, eh, Alva? <laughs> so, why, uh, why do you have your coat on? Well, I'm leaving. It's five o'clock. Um, but you know, Alva, you still haven't found that contract yet, have you? Mr. Lowe, there are 15. There's Spiegel files. It's all I do all day. I mean, I... But you haven't found it yet, Alva. Now, don't you think it would be a good idea to stay late? Maybe work a little overtime? My eyes are killing me. Oh. Well, I was, I was also thinking today that maybe you could put somebody else on the job for a while. Or uh, another secretary to help me out. I mean, you know, to make the job easier. Alva. There is no one else in this entire office that I could possibly ask to share such a horrible job. You're the lowest on the totem pole here, Alva. The lowest. Do you realize that? Every other secretary who's been here has been here longer than you, Alva. Every one. 
And even if there was someone here who was here just one day longer than you, I still wouldn't ask that person to partake in such a miserable job as long as you were around. That's right, Alva. It's a horrible, horrible job. Sifting through old contract after old contract. I couldn't think of a more horrible job if I wanted to. And you have to do it. You have to, or I'll fire you. Do you understand? Do you? He also, after he's trashing his apartment, finds a cockroach crawling on the uh, uh, stove and eats it. And you can bet oh. your bottom dollar that was a real cockroach. And yes, he munched it down. The, 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 the thing about that bit is that you can see it coming. Like, he, it takes him a while to catch this cockroach. Mm. And this is how we know it's a real cockroach. Because the scene seems a little bit haphazard. Like, there's a moment where it seems like he might not actually catch it. Mm. It might disappear down the gas pipe. But it, you're watching him grabbing at this real cockroach and you're just sitting there going don't eat it Nick. don't, don't eat, eat it don't, don't eat don't it don't oh my it. god don't eat it <laughs> it's, 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 it's there and it's gone and that's Renfield obviously yes. which makes me think of Michael Scott again because mm. in The Office actually in the episode directed by Joss Whedon Dwight gets bitten by a vampire by a bat by a rabid bat no no that, that Jim starts to pretend that he's a vampire he's like you know the, the lights are really uh, glaring today and I've got this this incredible hunger, and Dwight's like, I may have to stake Jim, which is dangerous as a game to play with Dwight, because he'll fucking he's, stake He'll do it. <laughs> but they could just as easily have had that show, uh, uh, that episode, being Michael under the impression that he was becoming a vampire, mm. and the office kind of allowing him to believe this, mm. because th- there's something incredibly charming about Michael's the way he's wrong about things and sort of the, the he draws from the wrong sources to, to get his information. Prison Mike, what was the food like in prison? Gruel. Sandwiches. Gruel omelets. Nothing but gruel. Plus, you can eat your own hair. Wow. Prison sounds horrible. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. Thanks. Prison Mike, what's the very, very worst thing about prison? The worst thing about prison was the was the Dementors. They were flying all over the place and they were scary and then they'd come down and they'd suck the soul out of your body and it hurt. And with Vampire's Kiss, sometimes it feels like Nick Cage is just doing what he thinks a vampire should do. Mm. So he eats a pigeon, live. You just, like, he goes to the park, like, grabs a pigeon, staggers back home and then you just see a lot of feathers and he's like, oh, oh. And it, like, at least on four, burping, occa- on four occasions in this film, for no reason at all, he just goes, it's like he's trying to vomit the vampire out of him (laughs) what that made me think of though with the pigeon was Louis, Louis, Louis all I need to find you is to follow the corpses of rats (laughs) there's so many little echoes of vampire films that came after this like I said to you at one point is he trying to do Keanu Reeves' accent from um uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But and it was four no, years before. Because beforehand. this was 1988. Music, those animals. Yeah, that's what he sounds like! <laughs> so. He fashions for himself a couch coffin. <laughs> like, he lies under his oh couch in this shit pit of an apartment that he's now trashed and kind of, like, draws the co- the couch coffin over him but to the, sleep underneath. The best part is that he he pulls it down and you don't really notice immediately, but he stacked books up to sit under the arms so that there's space for him underneath there. Yeah. And it's like, even in your complete... Delusion. Goneness. You were able to work out that this couch would crush you if you just pulled it down on top of you. He's fashioned it for himself. It's sweet. Oh. Also, like it leans on uh, Nosferatu, the Murnau yes. film. Yeah, v- well, v- it, it explicitly uh, references it. it yeah, it, sh- it shows it some of that incredibly famous, uh, you know, still chilling mm. footage. The only problem with Nosferatu is the other one hour and 24 minutes or so of having to watch the rest of Nosferatu. Those bits at the end are still really gripping. Uh, But like he does that hunchbacked kind of Count Orlock thing. That's what he's learned a vampire is. Like he watched Nosferatu and that'll do. (laughs) 
Nothing else from the 20th century required. Mm. Seems like Nick Cage is really into German expressionism. Uh, this is a piece of a Vanity Fair he did where he mentioned Moonstruck. I had made a movie called Peggy Sue Got Married. Cher had seen that movie. And she immediately said, I saw Peggy Sue Got Married and I thought I was your performance was like watching a two-hour car accident or a train wreck. I was kind of amazed that she saw it that way and also that she wanted to work with me as a result of seeing a two-hour car accident, but that she wanted me to play Ronnie Camareri. And I was deeply flattered because I was still am a, a fan of Cher. And there's a, a moment where I raise the wooden hand and I, I say, I lost my hand, I lost my bride. And I think I got that idea from watching Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I think there's a moment in that movie, I'm not 100% certain, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I do believe I was inspired by a moment in that movie when the doctor ripped off the glove from his metallic hand and he did that and I wanted to be kind of German expressionistic like the old Metropolis movie by Fritz Lang. I lost my hand! I lost my bride! Johnny has his hand! Johnny has his bride! You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away and forget? Um, and we mentioned the fangs before. He, he had a choice between fiberglass and plastic, but he buys them in a Chinese medicine shop. And it's like, oh yeah, this is the old Chinese apothecary and joke shop. Sorry. <laughs> Just wanted to make absolutely sure. Like, anyone who lives in New York will probably better go, yep, that's about the size of it. You ever go into a Chinese medicine shop? They are also selling whoopee cushions. <laughs> you want to buy some Halloween merchandise? And some acupuncture pins. I don't think they let you do your own acupuncture, do they? No, no, no. You want to come in here in the back room and let us put pins in you? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> don't do... Do it yourself. Do your own acupuncture <laughs> and save. That's what happened to the dude from Hellraiser. You do it with a pair of compasses. <laughs> anyway, uh, so actually, uh, one bit of this film that's not actually funny at all. He chases Alva around and says, It's too late, Alva. It's too late, Alva. It's not too late. Too late. Too late. Huh? It's not too late. It's too not late. Too late. Too late. Too late. It's too late, Alva. It's all too late, Alva. Come here. She's just had enough. She actually finds the fucking file. Mm. And this clearly sends him off at the deep end. Uh, he's still imagining this vampire woman uh, who says, you're with me now. And he's now completely convinced he's a vampire. He chases her around, chases her to the basement. She threatens him with a gun she's had in her handbag, which we keep coming back to is Chekhov's literal gun here. Mm. Um, but we also get told that she's only got blanks in it. So he believes that these bullets aren't doing him yeah, this any is, harm. She has, it's actually a really nice bit of, um, of show not tell exposition she has a conversation with her brother yeah. about the fact that he's given her this gun to protect herself but he will not let her have real ammo for it her his theory is it's just to scare people who would try and spit on you in the street yeah um it's not really for any um any purpose because he doesn't want her to get hurt side note by the way her brother is an action figure if you actually look at him he is he is beefy and built and he like is, he's got this yes. chiseled jaw mm. and then Immediately afterwards, after meeting her brother properly, Peter calls his shrink, and his shrink is like, ah, I can't really see you right now. And she's got a beefcake with her. Totally For a moment, does. I thought it was the same action figure. It's a completely different action figure. Mm. But, like, everyone's got action figures apart from Peter. Um, but, yeah, so she tries to um, not shoot him with blanks, aiming away from him. and Because she doesn't want him to know that it's just blanks. Yes, yeah. because, of course, if she shoots him, then, mm. then it's like, oh, that was a blank. And eventually she collapses on the floor after he grabs her. And it's it's effectively a rape. It is a rape in the truest sense of depowering someone. Yeah, it's, depowering and violation. Yeah, and there doesn't seem to be anything sexual about it. There doesn't seem to be any kind of sexual organs involved. He's just holding her down on the floor while she just goes away. Yeah, although, I mean, he, at one point she actually screams at him, don't rape me, please. Yeah. And he tears her dress open. But again, it seems to be more the fact that he's trying to... Threaten her enough her that she will shoot him. him. To yeah. say, I am this terrible, you yeah. have to kill me. Yeah, he's trying to... To give not, her no choice. Yeah. Unfortunately, she's not equipped. But at the same time, it's not her job to kill him. No. And so her only recourse at this point is to do the Victorian swoon. He gets her on the ground and she's like, I'm Ugh, unconscious. I'm gone. Yep. <laughs> and, to, you know, he then goes and grabs her gun, sticks it in his mouth. And, you know, this was Nick Cage actually straight up doing this with blanks and fires several blanks into his face, mm. which... Uh, considering we did Don't the, do that. We did The Crow a few uh, weeks ago for a quick review, and my God, 
don't fuck around with blanks on a movie set. Mm. Frankly, eating the cockroach is one thousandth less dangerous. Yeah. Than I mean, this. you again, it's Nick Cage, so you just know he said to the director, "No, no I totally want to do, do this." But honestly, there's a sizable family in Hollywood that are going to have words to say to you if you manage to accidentally kill Nick Cage. Mm. In response to that, you have to do it, Alva. Scenario. Alva decides to call in sick the next day. She just can't go into work. That's when her, her mother says, you know, all bosses are crap. And she's like, not like this one. And she's basically collecting herself and gearing up to actually quit because this is a ludicrously untenable situation. But they make no bones about the fact that if you're in a certain financial position, you can't afford to quit. So she's in a real rock and a hard place situation. This is where breakdowns happen because you can't go forwards and you can't go back. So Peter, because he's obsessed with her, gets a cab ride all the way out to her house and holds up soup at the window and says, I brought you soup, which obviously freaks her out. But then he brings her back to work and he's, it seems like Peter suffers from a bipolar disorder, which does not necessarily make you an abuser, but it does make the abuse far more intense when your mood swings down that low. And at this point in the film, he's trying his best to be nice to her, which just comes off as weird and creepy. And then when she's back at the office, he turns around and becomes menacing. The work's not just going to go away, Alva. It never just goes away. Relentlessly disparaging. And then at the end of the day, he breaks and uh, chases her down. And this whole attempted suicide by attempted rape scenario plays out. And this is a clumsy but somewhat accurate portrait of certain kinds of abusers who go through passages of being affectionate and generous, especially when they've scared you away, just to bring you back to them. But eventually, once you get to know their patterns, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, waiting for them to reveal their horrible side, which is, in this reviewer's non-medically practiced opinion, really who they are. If a person's going to be judged by their actions, it should be the abuse which takes precedence over the, but he can be really sweet. Alva's pretty much out of the movie now. She's catatonic. Mm. Uh, and uh, her brother is uh, revenge-fueled. So there's a... a um, the, the finale scene is him talking to his shrink. And it's cutting back and forth between... He's talking to the shrink and he's kind of the together Peter from the beginning of the movie. Mm. And it's cutting back to... He's a nutter in the street, haggard, disheveled, with this crazed hair. He's got the worst haircut. You mentioned Crispin Glover. Mm. I was thinking the thin man from yeah. Charlie's Angels. It's yeah. worse than that. Absolutely. Just... To clarify, the scene with Alva in the basement, yeah. is that before or after the girl in the club? Oh, no, it's it's before. Yeah, the girl in the club. He, she's she's part of the final descent. Yeah, shit, uh, right? she, uh, after um, uh, being unable to kill himself, he goes to a club with these fangs on, the plastic fangs just sort of going, hey, 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 doing the monster mash to everyone. But everyone <laughs> thinks it's no great. One notices. They all just ignore him. Yeah, well, everyone thinks it's great. Everyone just sort of goes, well, you're just another crazy dancer. That's mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. Meets a girl who's snorting cocaine, who laughs at him with his uh, vampire fangs. And then he gestures to her to ev- effectively give herself up to him. And she's sort of up for it for a bit. Like, oh, this is new. And then he actually starts to nosh down on her neck. Mm. And uh, it's it's pretty brutal and horrible. Th- there's various... Like bits where I'm like, hang on a second, these are just plastic vampire teeth they would bend against someone's neck. So practicality was intruding. They're also bone white. Like afterwards, he should be soaked in gore. There's blood everywhere except the fangs mm. afterwards. Yeah. I suppose to emphasize how plasticky and shitty they are. Mm. But yeah, he eventually kills her and leaves her body in this club and then wanders off and no one even sees. Uh, but he does also find his vampire woman dancing in the club and... This is just after she's found him and rejected him and said, I've got Donald here. Mm. And, like, Donald is her date. So in his wildest fantasy, he conjures up a man to cuckold him. Well, yes, indeed. But a big part of it is that she's... Uh, again, we, we're not entirely sure whether this is part of his uh, fantasy. There's certainly overlap that suggests some of it is, but whether she is actually a real woman who's there, who's sparked all the fantasy in the first place, and now this is the actual real woman saying, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Um, but the uh, part of what she tells him is that he's mishandled 
what he's doing. The mm. fact that he's openly killed somebody and just left them there. He's sloppy. He's pathetic. Mm. She doesn't want to have anything to do with him. Anymore. I don't know if there's a scene underneath that scene where he's sort of waving at the uh, and like trying to talk to this girl and she's saying, "No, I'm with this guy right now." Yeah. But and he's interpreting that, that was as my as, suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. Because then he finds her on the dance floor and she's like, "What the fuck, man? Get away from me!" And she seems surprised to see him. So yeah. maybe it's just that he saw her with. Donald mm. and was like, oh, she's rejecting me. She's rejecting me. Yeah. I love you. You can't just walk away. You don't know what you're doing, damn it. I said I love you. So yeah, this is the, the, the denouement after that is it cuts back and forth between him standing on a table with a bit of wood that he pulled off of a, uh, a pallet, a pointy bit of wood. Uh, and sort of flourishing it at his shrink, who seems very keen for him to have made all of this progress. And he's very happy with himself now. Mm. And so he tells her that he's he's kind of, you know, his hair's slicked back and he's very together and his mm. suit's nicely pressed. He looks pressed. like his successful image of himself. He is. This is his residual self-image. Yeah. His best self in his head. Yeah. Um, whereas in the park, he's this haggard, blood-covered, screaming hobo. Mm. Since this is a delusion, we're not actually witnessing the real Dr. Glazer here. This is a version of Dr. Glazer inside Peter's head. But earlier in the film, there's this ranting scene where he's shouting at the real Dr. Glazer about filing systems that A, I feel like Nicolas Cage improvised or at least added a lot of extra energy to the lines in the script, much like the scratching of the Bit. Probably quite scaring Elizabeth Ashley, the actress playing his shrink. But also, this scene, for all its manic energy, is arguably just as memorable and weird as the and you have to do it scene. Do you want to talk about it? Well, it's just there's this contract we're trying to locate. Shouldn't, if a company... If a literary agency makes a copy of every contract, of every single contract it makes with a client, and then puts it in a file, in the appropriate file, shouldn't the copy be in that file? Yes, I suppose it should. It should, right? Yes. Right? Hmm. Yep, 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 yep. Well, unless, of course, it's somehow been misfiled. But misfiled? Yes, misfiled. Sometimes somebody puts a document in the wrong file and then it's misfiled. And it makes it much harder to find. Uh, who? Who? What do you mean, who? I don't know who exactly. You don't? No, I don't. Whoever filed it in the first place, but for God's sakes, Peter, I am not telling you one single thing you don't already know. How could somebody misfile something? What could be easier? It's all alphabetical. You just put it in the right file according to alphabetical order. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Peter. H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Peter. Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z! Huh? That's all you have to do! Very good. You know your alphabet. I never misspelled anything! Not once, not one time! I'm sure that you did. I want to know, really. Who did? I cannot possibly tell you that. You can't? No, I can't. Ha! You call yourself a psychiatrist. But that's at the beginning of the movie. So let's go back to the end, where he's in the park burbling to himself and seeing his shrink in his head. Then she, violating uh, patient doctor confidentiality, which makes you well, know she's a therapist this in is his bullshit. Head at this point. She's like, there's this woman who comes in after you, and she likes Genesis too. And uh, he, he, she's like, Sharon, get in here. Get your ass in here. The, you know, what do you like? And then this woman comes in and says, I like poetry, horseback riding, Vivaldi, and long weekends in the country. 
those are exactly the same things that I like. Well... But this, I mean, this therapist is not, she's not the best shrink in the world. Mm. There's, I mean, it's, it's again, portrayals in films often, but she's, the way she sits, the chair she uses, the way she kind of, I'm assuming for the sake of the camera, but she angles her body away from him. So she's kind of talking to him over her shoulder. And the general impression is, I really don't care about the things that you're telling me. I'm totally gated off and guarded from any kind of real exchange, which actually accidental though it may have been, emphasizes the fact that Peter has no connections in his life, no real relationships with people, Mm. which is one of the things that therapy is supposed to uh, provide you with if you don't have it. If you have nothing else, at least you have this one opportunity to connect with someone who will listen to you and care about you. When he's screaming the alphabet at her, he goes through the whole thing. <laughs> she ends up going, you know your alphabet, that's fine. But she seems genuinely scared for yes. her life at that point. Like, yeah. this guy's going to flip out and kill me mm. with this wooden phallic... African uh, fertility symbol. Yeah. But then he starts rattling off the things he's done. The fact that he uh, raped Alva. Well, he says he raped Alva in the in the car park. And he killed somebody and left them in a club. And she's like, ah, oh, sure. That happens all the time in Manhattan. Okay. No one's going to care. That's not the shrink. That's the shrink That's in the, his head. It, it, yeah, exactly. Like, there's That's a difference it. between the one who was scared he might kill her and the one who was with that beefcake later on and the one in his head that's like, ah, everybody rapes. That it was the real shrink yeah. all the way up. Yeah, to the, to this last the end yeah. scene where it's juxtaposing mm. reality with fantasy. Mm. And in this scenario, fantasy is a really bad uh, retreat for him. Yes. It is a really unhealthy one because yeah. he's convinced... Him, effectively, he convinces himself in his head that everything's going great. Mm. Whilst at the same time, just ever so slightly putting to the side the whole I killed and raped people. Yeah, well, part of it is... And, and it's it's it almost sounds like he's had a little bit of a breakthrough. But if you listen to the way he's throwing it back at her, it's like, I don't need therapy. You just kept bringing me here to get money out of me. All I actually need is real, true love. That's what I need to find and that's all I ever needed to find and you've just stopped me from finding true love by going on about all of this internal crap his fake shrink is like oh you go off and enjoy your life you are absolutely fine and he goes home wanders around his bed sits screaming and then Alva and her brother turn up Uh, Alva's brother is packing a tire iron and uh, he breaks into uh, Peter's apartment Peter after a very brief tussle, jumps onto the ground and then puts the pointy bit of wood on his chest as though to go, do it, man, do it! And then uh, the brother's like, yep, okay, okay gonna then. do that then. <laughs> plunges it, plunges it down into his chest, bloodily and messily executing this vampire real man, deluded poor fool of an idiot who's actually a danger to society. Mm. And then he bleeds out and uh, you get shots of the apartment and then shots of New York, the end. And it's a sad, sad story. Mm. It's kind of flabbergasting to watch this whole thing play out. It it's operatic. Mm-hmm. It's, it's at its best being the crap version of itself mm. rather than trying to be a legitimate I demand to be taken seriously Absolutely. version of itself. And there are so many moments of, wait a minute, that doesn't even make sense. Like, um, there's one stage where he's he's kind of retreating into this Renfield-like... Um, and he lives uh, for the master. Yeah, in, in his apartment. And he's this is the, the scenery chewing bit. He sits on the bed and he's like chewing trying to a eat pillow. his own pillow. But he's shredded his curtains so there's like little... He's pulled them all across but then torn them so there's little bits of sunlight coming into the room. And there's one stage where, because it's sort of time lapses, so it's cutting to him in different parts of the, of the apartment. And he's trapped in a corner... Because there are shafts of sunlight crisscrossing in front of him and he, and it's done so that he can sort of stick his arm out and try and get through it and, it and he kind of jerks it back as if it's burnt him. You don't see any evidence that it has, but that's how he reacts. Mm. And my first thought was, how the fuck did he get into that corner in the first place? Surely he would have had to walk through the sunlight in order to get there. Yeah. Again, he has that Michael's illo- child illogic thing yeah, going on. Absolutely. It's And, and there's, a, there's another scene where he's in... Oh, this one's brilliant. He's in the bathroom at work and he's standing in front of the mirror. And they, oh, this is honestly, this is a little bit genius of of camera work. But they set it up initially so that you can see the back of Nick Cage's head. You Mm. can see that there is a mirror in front of him, but you can't see his reflection yet. 
and he's looking at it and he's like he's, it's like he suddenly has this realization that he can't see himself in the mirror and it's on a par with the how to get burned how to get burned scene in the wicker man this hers tell me i yes i, I think it, yeah how to get burned how to get burned I, how to get burned how to get burned i don't know where, where am i and then gradually the camera sort of angles a little bit so you can see that, oh no, there he is. There's his reflection right there. And, and there's, there's another massive mirror, mirror next to him. And you can, like, we, the audience, can see his reflections very, very clearly. And to undercut his dramatic performance, a guy in the stalls yells, pipe down, I gotta take a shit. No, 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 he's, <laughs> he's going, where am I, where am I? And the guy goes, you just see this, like, trousers round ankles and this voice goes, you're in a bathroom and I'm trying to take a dump. <laughs> It is brilliant. Whether intentionally so, I don't know, but props where props are due. <laughs> it's great. Oh, oh Christ. Oh Christ, where, where am I? Where am I? It's, it's, where, where am I? Oh Christ, where am I? Oh, I've become a vampire. tragedy of the ending this was what really made me go ah that's what they're doing because we've talked about the whole there are other vampire films that are referenced and, and echoed even echoed forwards which mm. is interesting um but there's there's a point where when alva goes to speak to her brother at work her brother works in a, a car repair garage which is called romero's and i went romero i wonder if that's on purpose and um, then it got to the end and I was like, yes, it's totally on purpose because this is Martin. Explain Martin. Right. Martin was uh, a vampire film which Romero made in the late 70s. I think it came out in 78. And it's the story of a young man <clears throat> who is convinced that he is a vampire. His, <clears throat> his approach to his victims, because he doesn't have teeth is uh, he carries like a, a syringe of anaesthetic around with him all the time and he, he basically drugs women and I, th I think rapes them. I can't remember exactly. I saw it a long, long time ago. This is one of the first vampire films I ever saw. It's one of those late night Channel 4 jobs. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's incredibly creepy, incredibly effective. Apparently it was Romero's favourite movie of his and I can see why. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is this is the life, the style that he lives, and he he goes to stay with a, a great uncle, I believe it is, who comes from the old country, and he believes that Martin, whether or not he's a vampire, is demonically possessed and evil and needs to be kept away from humans and then destroyed. And he's got a cousin who lives with this guy as well called Christine, who the the uncle is sort of constantly trying to keep him away from because he doesn't want him to hurt her. And Martin is obviously very disaffected very isolated wherever this delusion of his has come from it's come from a place of very deep loneliness and this is the only way that he's been able to find any kind of uh, ability to relate to the people around him mm. which makes it really tragic and really sad and as the, as the story goes on, he ends up um, trying to connect with the people who are in this village that he's now living in. It doesn't work out. Something tragic happens and the uncle decides Martin is responsible for it and he's got to go. And the end is that he kills him. Mm. But that kind of made me realise this is an over-the-top, ridiculous take on that story. Mm. But blending in the soullessness of yuppie greed in corporate nineties America, absolutely, absolutely. And actually, if you if you then extrapolate out to uh, American Psycho, that that puts a direct link between American Psycho and Martin and the idea of of like the because vampires in their I won't say their original format because obviously they go back hundreds and hundreds of years, but in the format Thousands. that we know them best, which is the Bram Stoker take and the Victorian attitude towards them, they were about sexual power that straight men didn't understand and to make vampire stories which are emphasizing more that this sexual power is really only real when it's viewed by people outside like the the vampire is an other 
but the power that the vampire has is something that the norm creates. It's they, they other it because that's a power that they want and they want to give a reason why they can never have it. And actually the disconnection, the isolation, the loneliness, those are the elements of the vampire story that I uh, find way more interesting when you shift the perspective to the other and see how the other actually is. That's when it gets good. Mm. I think it would be fair to say that the psychological research that went into this film was a little sparse. And while Peter might suffer from bipolar disorder and be an abuser, there's other stuff going on with him as well. His behaviour is wildly exaggerated for dramatic slash comedic purposes. This is billed as a black comedy on Wikipedia. And there's the delusional and hallucinatory component that bipolar disorder doesn't generally entail. There's a lot going on with Peter, and it is possible to sympathise for him whilst ultimately condemning his actions. Due to his high-profile job, he has access to the kind of psychological help that New York City in 1988 could provide to those with means. A hell of a lot of people on the bottom rung have no access to that help. So while it's debatable that Peter could have quote-unquote gotten better, he at least had a chance. He at least had the inclination to explore that. And he chose not to. He chose to lose himself in the delusion. And there's an element of narcissism in there as well, in that he attempts to use other people, specifically Alva, to change or indeed end his life, resulting in the near ruination of hers. I think at the end of the day, Marty McFly said it best when he said, He's an asshole. I'm a vampire. I can prove it. You got a gun. You got a gun. Fuck off me. And just time to thank our $15 sponsors on Patreon for this month. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Blair, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vihey, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfman, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Daxler, and Lorraine Chisholm. One, two, thirty-six. Thirty-six top-tier sponsors. Ah, ah, ah. There's one other point to make, uh, which is before he goes back to his apartment, between the park where he was in his head at the shrink's office picking up Sharon and uh, being reunited with this... Not me. The girl in the story is called Sharon. Yeah. What a beautiful name. Uh, you know, he's being united with the girl of his dreams, the one he's like, you know, this is the one for me. Like, you know, you and I, we're going to go off and, and, and be together forever. By the time he's got back to his apartment, he's arguing with this invisible person out loud and he's ending the relationship. And it's... <laughs> yeah. It speaks of, of, like, this is doomed. There's literally no redemption yeah, for this guy. absolutely. Even if he did meet the right person, he'd fucking destroy her within minutes. Yeah, it's like, it's again, it's the tragedy of the little kid whose imaginary friends won't talk to them. Yeah. So, yeah, he does end up a sort of a pitiful figure, but he's too weird to live. He's too weird and dangerous to live. Yes. You can be this weird, if you're not harming anybody, the world is better with you in it, making it weirder. If you are harming people, maybe being staked isn't too much of a tragedy. Applying to the laws of New York, finding girls in nightclubs and biting them with your cheap-ass teeth mm. uh, is, is against the law, right? He, well, he'd yes. at least go to jail for that. Generally speaking, although it isn't... I think he'd end up in a, in a lunatic asylum for his actual mental condition. Potentially as well. so, but it's it's not made completely clear that, um, that that girl is real, because nobody finds her, and there are no direct repercussions for, for that. There is a, there is newspapers that say body found and uh, a woman oh, found Oh god, him. yes, of course. Yeah. Sorry, I forgot about that. I think that, that yeah. definitely did happen. Yeah. He's also covered him, in blood. They 
throw him out of the club, yeah. but that's because he's screaming the C word at this poor woman who he's just <laughs> trying to, you know, who he thinks is the vampire woman. Just when you thought he couldn't get any cuddlier. Well, indeed, yeah. They drag that bit out way longer than they need to yeah. as well. It's just Nick Cage. It's like this long static shot of him fighting his way through the crowd in the club and you only know where he is because of the profanities that are rising out of the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's Vampire's Kiss, and like I said, it's a shame that you can't find it anywhere. If you are going to want to see it, maybe look for bits of it on YouTube to get the the, the best bits, but once you've seen them, you'll be like, hmm, I need a little bit more of that, <laughs> and I want to see this whole thing in context. So it will be pricey to track down, but we hope we've given you at least an understanding of it, so that if you ever do encounter it, you can snap it up. And uh, maybe it'll get a re-release at some point. Probably not. It's not something that I think anyone involved is proud of. But it's so weird in a special way. So I guess I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's School's Out! out. Incredible. It's really incredible. <gasps>